Yes. Jesus rose from the dead, people. Pastor's tucking his shirt in. We're walking in miracles. Come on. (laughs) All right. I'm going to read this text. We're in Acts chapter 2. I'll explain why we're in Acts chapter 2 for Easter in a few minutes. But for now, let me read verse 29 through 36. And this is, by the way, Peter the apostle preaching a resurrection sermon to a bunch of disciples. And he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor his flesh to see corruption. It's this Jesus that God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Can someone say amen? Amen. Now, as you got here, I want to, uh, I wonder if you are familiar with Haley Street, which is actually the next street over parallel with Gutierrez. If you've lived here for any amount of time, you know where Haley Street is. Or if you're not, maybe you're just visiting for church, you might have driven down Haley trying to find the church when you figured out that you were going in the wrong direction. You couldn't turn around because you're on a one way. But Haley is right over on that side, and Haley actually got named after a man by the name of Salisbury Haley. And in 1850, the city of Santa Barbara commissioned Salisbury Haley with the task of charting out the grid system that we now drive through in downtown Santa Barbara. He was charted with coming up with the street names and the blocks. And they named a street after him, even though it is one of the worst grids in all of the country. There's a lot of theories behind where things went wrong, but the most popular and probably the most accurate is that Haley, when he was tasked with surveying and measuring the length of each city block, he used some survey chains that had been mended together with strips of rawhide. The problem with that is that depending on the temperature of the day, for example, in Santa Barbara, if you come to church here in the parking lot, it's cold in the morning and hot in the afternoon, they will expand or contract accordingly. The result is that certain city blocks were a little bit longer than other city blocks. And you know this because in four different places in downtown, You're driving through a street, and they don't quite line up, do they? Now, there's a lot of those, but the most popular and my my personal favorite is the corner of Santa Barbara and De La Guerra. 
I remember when I was first driving up from Milpas down De La Guerra in my car, no stop signs, free shot, and the first stoplight uh, was a green. I'm like, great, it's a green light, and I start to drive. Oh my goodness, I'm about to drive into a building. And then the confusion just keeps going from there. Does the street keep going? I think it does. It's a green light. I can go forward, but I can't really go forward. I have to do two turns. I got to turn right, and then I got to turn left. Or maybe I'm being forced right down the city, uh, down the street of Santa Barbara. Do I keep going? I'm not sure. I can't turn around. It's a one way. Well, what if I want to turn on Santa Barbara and take a right? What if it's a stoplight? Can I stop and go? Do I go? Nobody knows. This is the handiwork of Salisbury Haley. Slap some construction on that puppy and you've got a whole mess for days. The reason I bring that up is because even though that was 170 years ago, it still messes things up today and yet we can't avoid going through it. Our entire grid is based on something somebody did decades ago. And isn't that a little bit like what life is sometimes like? Have you ever had something imposed on you that you didn't ask for and that you can't change? Maybe it was some relational drama. Maybe it was problems in your workplace. Maybe it was an employer. Maybe it was a sibling. Maybe it was a pandemic. I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever experienced something that you didn't ask for that you still had to go through and couldn't change? These instances in our life speak to our lack of control over so much. They speak to the reality that no matter how we slice things, we're not as in control of our life and of our situations and environment as we would like to think. We're all out of control. And it's to a similar group, just like us, that's out of control, in the middle of chaos and uncertainty, that Peter speaks the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason I picked the book of Acts, you might be wondering, why are we in the book of Acts for Easter? Well, for the last eight Easter's, I've preached the resurrection from either the gospel of Luke or the gospel of Matthew. The reason I chose this one is because as I was reading it, I, I, I couldn't help but think, this is so similar to us right now. It's a group of people after Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, gathered on the southern steps of the temple outside in a little courtyard with uncertainty because their lives are not in their control. And they're looking for hope. And Peter gets up there and begins to preach the gospel of a risen Lord. I read that and I thought, this is so timely for us right now. As we're gathered in a courtyard in the middle of Santa Barbara with all of those other thoughts of uncertainty and loss of control, I think this is not just a word for those original listeners, but for us here today. And Peter begins expounding, and he's borrowing from Psalm chapter 16, but he's preaching to this crowd and he's preaching to us. And the first thing that he does is he affirms their loss of control. He says, you're right. You're not as in control as you think. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, I want to say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and he was buried and his tomb is still with us. 
If I could rephrase that, it's like Peter is saying, even our heroes die. Even our, even our hero of heroes, they're going to make it to the grave. Even King David, the best king in Israel's history, who seemed to have control over everything in life, still couldn't control death. Not just our heroes, but our loved ones. Eventually ourselves. Death is that ultimate reminder that we're not in control of our lives. Even if we can create an illusion that we are, death is always there to remind us we're not that powerful. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God and how that kind of plays into our relationships with one another and tears things apart. Some of you, you might be 20 years old saying, I ain't thinking about death at all. I'm living my best life. Just bought a car. Yet the author Ernest Becker would remind us that the fear of death drives all of us, even if you're 20. It drives us in our motivations. When we make money, when we chase after careers, when we accumulate status, it's all to transcend this life, to last a little bit longer. Death is always there, reminding us that we're not in control and we're doing everything that we can to escape it. I wonder if the disciples felt a loss of control as well. I wonder if they felt a sense of denial too. When Jesus was first arrested, I wonder what went through the disciples' mind. I wonder if they thought, you know, I see that he's getting arrested, but that's my Lord and Savior, and he promised a lot of stuff, and he's gonna, he's gonna take them out. Wonder what went through their minds when that didn't happen. When he stood before Pilate and he was condemned to death and they hung him on a cross and all of the disciples except John and a couple women remained, I wonder what went through their mind. Maybe it was, yeah, this is grim, but he's gonna call on some angels and he's gonna get off that cross and then we're gonna continue the plan that I, I had in my expectations. But make no mistake, when Jesus was laid in that tomb, wrapped in cloth, laid in a tomb, there's a finality that comes with funerals that reminds us over and over, we can't stop death. That's what funerals are for. That's what caskets are for, is to remind us in the midst of our denial that this is over, this life is over, so that we can at least have some closure and move on. I know this feeling as perhaps some of you do as well. Last year, I buried my sister. And when I first got the news years ago that she had stage four pancreatic cancer, I knew the math. I knew the ratio. I knew that this was grim, but in my heart, I was like, she's the healthiest person in the family. She's gonna kick this. And when she called from the hospital and told me that things were Looking a little bleak, I spoke with her and talked to her, but in my heart, I was like, she's gonna beat this. This happens to everybody else, but it doesn't happen to us. And when my mom called me with a shaky voice to tell me that Jennifer had gone to be with the Lord, I still didn't believe it. 
It was when I was made the pallbearer, looking over on the other side of my sister's casket at my dad, that my heart sunk. And I said to myself, this isn't fair. Death is not fair. The brokenness is not fair. The pain is not fair. And death, even if we can create an illusion that we can control everything else in our life, it's like this thing over here constantly reminding us that our time is going to cut short. And brothers and sisters, that is why Easter is the loudest day in the church calendar. Because like a piercing light in the darkness. It's God through his son saying to people who can't conquer death, who can't even fix the roads in Santa Barbara, much less death, sin, and the devil, saying with a loud voice, death does not have the final word. Death does not have the final word. The devil does not have the final word. In fact, Peter would say in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, it's this Jesus. God raised him up, and of that we are all witnesses. We were there, bro. We saw that guy coming out of the tomb. We saw his hands. We touched him. We ate with him. And I love this scene because this is almost, when I read this, I see Jesus going over and beyond what he needed to do in the moment. He didn't just fix our problems. We've seen him do this in his earthly ministry. You could read in, his, in the stories, he healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed the poor and the hungry. But in this moment, he over accepts responsibility, goes over and beyond anything, and goes straight for the jugular. He says, if I can handle death, you know I'll be able to handle anything else. And in one fell swoop, Jesus makes a declaration that I am more powerful than the grave itself. Peter would say in Acts 2.24, it wasn't even possible for Jesus to be held by the pangs of death. Do you hear that? It's like Peter is saying, in this battle between Jesus and death, death is the underdog. It cannot hold him down. And you know what that means? That means if Jesus can handle death, he can handle anything else. He can handle your sin. He can handle the shame of your sin that plagues you in the morning and keeps you up at night. He can handle the devil. He can handle the chaos. He can handle injustice. He can handle death. That means I will see my sister one day again. That means my friend will see her dad one day again. That means my friend will see his daughter one day again. If Jesus can handle death, he can handle all of the ways that we find ourselves out of control. But you want to know why this is such good news for us right now? It means that Jesus' victory over death is actually our victory. In verse 33, it says, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. 
He has poured out what you now see in here. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. I love this. And to understand what's going on here, you gotta, I want to transport you into the shoes of the listeners who were there in that temple courtyard on that day. See, a few, a, a few verses before what we just read, there was a scene of chaos. I want you to imagine it. Outdoor parking lot right outside of the temple, a bunch of people like this, and a scene, right? This was a huge Jewish feast day, so there were maybe a half a million Jewish people from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem right at the temple, many of them. And in this scene in Acts chapter 2, a group of illiterate Galileans begin speaking in other languages. Now, they're not just speaking gibberish. They're literally speaking in all of the languages that were represented around the world in that moment, and they're speaking about the Lord. Imagine the scene. A few people, some, uh, some, sta- uh, some standbyers, said, gosh, these crazy Galileans, they're all drunk. And that's when Peter gets up onto his soapbox and says, they ain't drunk, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what the prophets have been telling us was going to happen. And then he shows them. And see, to understand what the prophets were saying, you have to go all the way back to Genesis. There's a story called the Tower of Babel. You might be familiar with it, but it is the apex of sin and evil in humanity. It's when people in utter rebellion against God and their greed and violence towards one another start to build this tower trying to get to the heavens. And it's a symbol of what people are like apart from God. And God, in the book of Genesis, he thwarts their mission by scattering them all over the earth and confusing their languages. That means what we're seeing in this scene is the reversal of Babel. It is God bringing people back to one place and giving them one voice and by the power of the Spirit, opening their eyes to see God in a saving way. That means when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't just doing some magic show for us. This wasn't just a parlor trick. He was single-handedly beginning the reverse of the curse on the world that results in everything from death to corruption to suffering. Jesus is righting every wrong. That means that the resurrection is not just a fancy trick. It's a statement from God. Peter would say in Acts 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's why we wanted to call this Easter the Ascension. The Ascension doesn't just mean Jesus rose into the sky, although he did that. The Ascension has some royal connotations to it. It means literally the act of rising to an important position or a higher level of authority. That's what God is saying. He's saying, through this resurrection, I have made my son the king of the universe. Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, it's his son who is declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Can somebody say Jesus is king? All of a sudden, in a stunning reversal, Jesus uses the one thing none of us can beat to display his power 
over all of the ways in our life that we have lost control. Jesus is saying, if I can beat death, I can do anything in your life. That means if Jesus can handle the grave, he can handle your life. If Jesus can handle the devil, he can handle your anxiety. If Jesus can handle and take on the sin of the world, he can handle the mistakes in your past. He can handle your guilt. He can handle your shame. If Jesus can handle the cross, he can handle your pain. If Jesus can handle the angry mobs, he can handle your personal drama. If Jesus can handle being alone in the garden, he can be present in your loneliness. If Jesus can pull off his own death and resurrection, he can certainly raise you from death to life. Can I get an amen? What we see in the resurrection is a sign of true hope. You have hope. You don't have to be lost anymore. You don't have to be confused. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be uncertain. And even if your life is out of control, you don't have to have control over it. You can be completely out of control and still have hope that Jesus is in control. Now you might say, that's great. But what about right now? Why are there still so many things wrong right now? Why is my life out of control? Why, are there still, why is there still evil in the world? Why doesn't God just end evil now? And our good friend Peter, in his last book, 2 Peter, would, would answer this. He would say, the Lord doesn't have the same timetable as we do. Well, you'd actually say, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as we consider slowness, but he's patient towards you not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the reason God doesn't just push the button on sin, evil, and brokenness is because he waits for people who are sinful, evil, and broken to encounter the living God and to be made right. He invites us to be seen as he rightfully is, a king who defeated death, sin, and the devil, and is now worthy of all worship and allegiance. A king who loved you so much that he gave his life to bring you into his family and make you whole. A king who is not surprised by your circumstances, my friend, but sits on the throne of power and invites you to walk with him and to trust him. I'm going to ask Robert and the band to come up here as we sing together and as we respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But to respond rightly, we need to consider other ways that we have responded. And the world's method of freedom is often trying to fight for control, fighting other people, fighting other things, fighting their problems, fighting their environment, fighting the situation, fighting other tribes, and this rarely works in the long run. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe you've been fighting for the last week, for the last year, for your whole life. Maybe you've been fighting and you're tired. And I came here to say this morning that Jesus was already fought for you on the cross and in his resurrection invites you into a new 
revolutionary way of freedom. Instead of fighting for control of your life, he invites you to surrender control of your life to him. What's this look like? Well, for some of you, maybe this is the first time you've ever done this. If someone were to ask you, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? Maybe you wouldn't be sure how to answer that, and that's okay. That's why you're here today. For you, all it means is to consider his invitation to follow him, to leave your life as you once knew it, and to follow him for the first time, to believe in him, to trust him, to give him your allegiance, to do the things that he did. You don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to have your life together. You certainly don't have to have control. For others, you might be a Christian already. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, and the invitation for you is the same as for a new believer. It's to continue surrendering the illusion of control in your life to Jesus. I know that's a hard thing for us to do. Maybe what's going through your mind right now is, If I surrender control, I'll lose a piece of who I am. But that couldn't be farther from the truth, my friend. Jesus never calls us to give something up so that we can be lesser versions of ourself. He calls us to release the false elements of ourself to find true life in him. And so even if you've been a Christian for 50 years, the invitation is the same. Lose yourself to find yourself in me. Jesus himself would say, those who try to hang on to their lives will lose it, but those who are willing to let it go for my sake will find real freedom in real life. Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. And year after year, decade after decade, century after century, that same invitation that has changed the world is still being made to non-believers, to current believers, to old believers alike, to everybody in in this parking lot and everyone at home watching. Follow Jesus. He's the only one who could defeat death, the devil, and your sin. And right now he kneels before you offering his hand as a tremendous loving invitation to follow the best master you have ever known. You will never regret taking that invitation. So let's respond as we sing through a handful of songs together, exalting him. Ponder in your heart who Jesus is to you and how you would respond to him today. Maybe it's to follow him for the first time. Maybe it's to release more control of your life to him to find freedom. We'll have prayer teams over by the suburban, different corners of the the house today that would love to pray for you. Maybe you've made a decision in your life for the first time to follow Jesus. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to know you and to support you. Others, maybe you've been a Christian, but you need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life right now. I beg of you not to wait until next week. Come and grab somebody on the prayer team and say, pray for me. I need more power in my life. Whatever it is, let's respond. Because God loves you. And he proved that by pulling off his own death and resurrection so that you might taste of his life. Amen.